Certainly what a delight and what a joy, what a privilege it is for us to be together this morning to offer worship to the magnificent God of heaven. Did not the psalmist of the long ago say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord, Psalm 122, verse number 1. And even as we experience the gladness of our consideration and our beings today together to appreciate the greatness of the one who made it possible and that this gathering might provide us with a source of strength and capability to endure not only the days ahead of us but to do so with prestige and power representing the very one who made us and who in fact has a home prepared for the faithful. It is in fact to be noted that as Brother Ted made the announcements certainly we should keep many on our prayer list and appreciative certainly of the Bible Bowl effort yesterday and all the congregation that has been a part of that. Certainly, we look forward to, from time to time to engage in activities like it. As you might have noted in the bulletin, the question that was asked as part of the title of today's lesson, is the law of Moses binding today? And in fact, as I thought about the nature of a lesson like that one, and perhaps the needfulness of it, I thought this would be an opportune time for us to turn our attention to that idea and perhaps spend at least a few moments thinking about not only the nature of the question itself, but of course asking from the God of heaven what the answer might be. I have made a few initial comments that I wish just to at least consider, and it might well be that in your conversations with others that people have expressed ideas like this to you. As you perhaps try to discuss the scriptures with someone, Perhaps someone who, from the time of his or her youth upward, has not had sufficient exposure to the Scriptures, in fact, perhaps even a minimal amount. The Bible looks to be a rather sizable book. It looks to be a book that, upon just a cursory reading, can pr prove to be confusing. A person says, I open and read out of this book called Leviticus, and it reads to be such that, do I need to do these things today? And then the person remarks, but I turn to Acts and I read out of this book that reads so differently. Which book am I supposed to follow? One or the other? Both? Could it be? And so it is that to the uninitiated or the person who doesn't understand the nature of the laws of God, the applicability of them, and the character of the wonder beneath that banner, it can be, in fact, a rather daunting task. Just as surely as God told this person of the long ago to build an ark, am I today to construct a similar one? Was that command given to you and to me? Those kinds of questions, you see, are exceedingly relevant. And though they might seem rather basic to some, certainly to others, they would not be. Perhaps to take that to a rather different level, one could, of course, discuss the Ten Commandments. It isn't at all unusual to drive along the roadway and see signs of the Ten Commandments in an individual's lawn or their yard. And it isn't that infrequent to hear on the news stories about laws or perhaps rulings of judges that have relation to the display of the Ten Commandments in a public place. And in fact, even interestingly in the very mind of some individuals, even who claim allegiance to the church of Christ, they lift high the Ten Commandments and claim in rather disbelief with regard to anybody who does not follow them and who does not believe them absolutely and identically. You see, there can be confusion, can't there, relative to the Ten Commandments, relative to the Old Testament law. I would hope that today, for the next few moments this morning, we could just take a few minutes 
and look at not only the nature of that question, but what the Scriptures have to say about an answer to it. To begin that particular set of ideas, might I invite your consideration to some notes, first of all, relative to the law of Moses, relative to some of the things found in the Old Testament. And you might notice that the first set of ideas surrounds this thought. Who were the recipients of and who were the subjects of the law of Moses? Now, I say that because that's a very pertinent and rather timely set of questions. The idea behind it is as simple as this. You and I well know today that we serve beneath the Constitution of the United States of America. Because we are citizens of this country, we subscribe to that set of laws in regard to the civil affairs of ourselves and our nation. That goes without saying, but doesn't that also suggest neither you nor I serve beneath, nor have we ever served beneath, the laws of the Constitution of Switzerland. We don't live in Switzerland. Not a one of us are citizens of that country, though a nice country no doubt it is. The fact is, though those laws are perfectly reasonable and perfectly good as far as I know, you and I do not obey them, we have no interest in them, and we do not subscribe to them. The same idea could well be understood then with regard to the law of Moses or other types of biblical sets of laws. Who were the recipients of the law of Moses? Who did God expect to abide by those laws? Let's revisit starting in the book of Exodus and look at a few passages on toward Deuteronomy. It is an interesting thing as we recollect a bit of Old Testament history. And in our Sunday morning class, we certainly are inching closer to the reality of this study again. As Abraham's seed had found themselves in Egyptian bondage, there serving beneath the difficulty and the taskmaster nature of those who were their Egyptian overlords, the time came in Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25, that God heard their cries. He heard their appeals. He heard, in fact, their desire for change. And it was in the very next chapter that God commissioned by virtue of His statements to him through a burning bush to bring my people out of Egypt. Moses eventually took up the mantle to do it very, that very thing. And as he led that people out of Egyptian bondage, they finally came to the base of Mount Sinai. But might we notice a few comments concerning not only that people, but the character of what God said to them. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, the very man who, in fact, was the leader of this people, Moses, God speaking through him said, For you, Israel, are an holy people. You, Israel, are a chosen one. For I have chosen you, not because you were the most numerous, not because you were the strongest, but because of the relationship of your fathers to me. They were a chosen people. Now, doesn't that easily allow us to see that here was Israel. They weren't the only nationality of people on earth. We've already studied, haven't we, about Girgashites and Perizzites, Jebusites, Perizzites, Hittites, Hivites, and the others. They were not God's people, but these Hebrews were. Let us look even further to appreciate that as they came thus out of Egypt and God gave them these laws... In Exodus chapter 20, let us notice a statement thus that God made to them. Exodus 20, 
Verse number 2 reads as follows. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And following that are what we call the Ten Commandments. And might we notice that God said, To these who were brought out of Egypt were these statements made. Later, Moses in fact reiterated these Ten Commandments. Now some years had passed and he made these statements shortly before they entered Canaan. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we notice very interestingly in verses 2 through 4, the following interesting comments. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us alive here this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. It is there to be noted then that in the verses that follow, the Ten Commandments are again set forth. Might we take note that very clearly stated in verses 2 and 3, to the people who came out of Egypt, to the individuals who by the power and instrumentality of God were brought forth from Egypt, was this law given? What law? That same law that is elsewhere called the law of Moses. That same law elsewhere that of course includes the nature of the Ten Commandments. It is thus to be noted that even Jesus referred to this as the law of Moses. In Luke 24 verse 44, after His crucifixion, after He was resurrected, as He in fact had just walked on the road to Emmaus with those two bewildered disciples, we read in verse 44, the Lord Himself speaking, that all the things written in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets concerning me have been fulfilled. The Lord made reference to this division of Scripture, this law of Moses, that which He gave, this law containing the Ten Commandments. But might we always keep in mind, the law in its entirety was not merely the Ten Commandments. There are those who have taken the liberty to count using the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How many laws did God give ancient Israel? It was far more than just ten. Those, I'm told, of the Jewish persuasion who in fact base their religious livelihood upon it have taken the liberty to determine that there are 624 of them. 624 laws and the Ten Commandments were only ten out of that number. As you and I appreciate then, it is a very worthwhile question to ask, do we serve beneath that law today? If so, my friend, there's a lot of laws we need to be keeping. And there's a lot of things that we'd better be doing that we are not now doing. Those questions are so interesting and they are so pertinent because again, they are a continental divide in terms of how one should stand right before God. As we continue the study this morning, we have thus learned something very interesting already. This law of Moses. We noticed God said to Moses, given to those who left Egypt. It wasn't given to any other people. It wasn't given to the mass of humanity that lived on earth at that time. It was only given to the subset of them known as Israel. Those that were the Hebrews. The Gergeshites, the Jebusites, all those other peoples never lived beneath the law of Moses. They were never subject to it.
And thus we learn a valuable lesson. God specifies in His Word those who are subject to the various laws of it. Not everybody was subject to the law of Moses. Certainly the Hebrews were. And God demanded that they obey it. And when they did not, they were punished. And when they did, they were blessed. But God did not expect other peoples to obey it who were never subject to it. Again, the question today, are you and I subject to it? What might you and I say about that very idea? On the next slide, there are some additional thoughts I would ask you to consider. Just as surely as we've already learned a valuable lesson, namely that not every person, even then, was subject to the law of Moses, there are some interesting statements contained in the very character of the Old Testament about the temporary nature of the law of Moses. That idea is a bit shocking to some. In other words, the Old Testament foretold the fact that the law of Moses was not permanent. It was never intended to be so. It would only last for the prescribed time that the God of heaven so determined, and beyond that it would fade into insignificance in terms of the laws that would be bound upon men, and it would be superseded by yet another. Might I invite your attention to the 31st chapter of Jeremiah? Certainly one of the high points of that bold and noble prophet of the Old Testament era. But in verses 31 to 34 of Jeremiah 31, we read the following statements about the law of Moses, about this character, this law God gave to ancient Israel. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Portions of that text are quoted verbatim in Hebrews in the New Testament and stated to prove forevermore that the Old Testament law God never intended to be permanent, but yet there was to be a time it would in fact be superseded or replaced by another. We even notice here that very clearly God used the word new. The days are coming, He said, I will make a new covenant with my people. This new covenant will not be of the same framework and style and fashion of the old. It will in fact be a rather new thing. As you consider that set of ideas with me, should you and I then, in light of that passage, not expect there to be a time when the law of Moses would be replaced? The law of Moses would be superseded. For after all, if God said it was not to be permanent, that means it can't be eternal and it can't be everlasting. You and I can only wonder, when did that time come? How long was the Old Testament to last? In fact, that too is given as an answer in the Scriptures. How long was the Old Testament to remain in force? The law of Moses to remain binding, if you please. We learn in the Galatian letter, Paul picked up the mantle of that discussion and really drove home the point in chapter 3 of that book. 
And if we might simply recollect verses 24 and 25 of Galatians 3, we will know exactly the answer to that portion of our question. How long was the Old Testament to remain binding? How long was the law of Moses to remain in effect? In his discussion of the law of Moses, Paul made this statement in Galatians 3.24. He said, Wherefore the law, what law? The law of Moses. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But when the faith has come, verse 25, then we are no longer under the schoolmaster. We are thus rather clearly informed that the law, in fact, would last until the faith came. It, in fact, lasted until it had served its purpose of bringing one to Christ. So one would expect when the Christ came, when the Christ, in fact, proceeded with His work upon earth, basically in that time frame, the law would be superseded. The law of Moses would be, in fact, replaced. As you and I study in the New Testament, we find then words that form the text of our lesson this morning. It was read just a few moments ago by Brother Joy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, made these statements. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily, verse 18, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus, in fact, uttered a rather amazing set of ideas in those two verses. Two ideas that I have simply chosen to list in brevity, but those which I think you and I can easily take to be precisely what the Lord said. First of all, you might notice in that nature, He said, I came not to destroy. But Jesus, you're the Son of God. You are God in the flesh. You are Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1.23. Thus, might we ask, in what relationship did Christ bear to that law of Moses? First of all, the Lord was a Jew. The genealogies of Matthew chapter 3, as well as Luke chapter 3, point us to the fact that the Lord, in fact, came through the lineage of Abraham. He was the subject of the law of Moses, and that law he kept perfectly. That law he kept in pristine completion. That law he never violated. As we appreciate that nature of his keeping of that law, notice what he said here. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. What law? The law of Moses. The Lord didn't come to destroy it. Rather, he came to fulfill it. In light of our previous passages, that makes complete sense, doesn't it? For in fact, you and I know God's Word cannot be destroyed. Is it not stated elsewhere that in fact, John 10 verse 35, Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. That's a direct declaration, isn't it? It cannot be broken. And in the Greek, that means it cannot be set aside. It cannot be annulled. All it can be do, all that can be done is to fulfill it and to replace it with that which is its superior. And that's what the Lord said He was doing. This law of Moses had fulfilled its purpose. It had accomplished its mission. It had brought those to Christ. And with that accomplished, it was ready to be superseded. We notice furthermore in verse 18, we also can see the very amazing feature 
till heaven and earth pass, not one part of it shall be taken away. Thus we notice that in that statement it was fulfilled. Doesn't that remind us of what the Lord said in Matthew 24, 35? When on that occasion too He made mention of the everlasting character of what God has set forth. So it seems that we're in a position to now notice that the old law prophesied it would be only temporary and the New Testament told us it should last until the Christ came. With the Christ coming, He Himself said He was going to fulfill it. And that paved the way for, that it, for it to be replaced. For another law, a better covenant, a superior one to be put in place. It is at this point we are now prepared to directly pull these ideas together and look at some of the things the New Testament says about this law of Moses. Is it binding today? Individuals need to know. You and I need to know. Might I begin to ask you to note now that with the Old Testament statement and the New Testament too of the completion, its fulfillment, we should now expect that it would not be binding today. That in fact it would be replaced by yet another. Let's assure ourselves of that fact. In Hebrews the 8th chapter, a chapter of only 13 verses, but nonetheless a rather dramatic chapter, because it was again written to Hebrews. And isn't the name significant? The very people who once were subject to the law of Moses had a book addressed to them in the New Testament. This group of people who knew the law of Moses and its power and its history, God inspired one of His writers to in fact direct these words to them so that they would know the following. Chapter number 8, beginning in verse 6. But now... Notice the adverb, now, hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Better than what? The law of Moses, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, for the Hebrews, what was that first covenant? The law of Moses. If that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second that seems such an easy thing to appreciate, doesn't it? If the law of Moses had been perfect, complete in every regard, able in fact to accomplish in the lives of humanity that which God in the ultimate establishment would desire, then there would have been no need for it to ever be replaced. There would never have been a need to supersede it with anything. But he goes on to say in verse 8, For finding fault with them... You see, that old law was not the absolute epitome of perfection. It could not make the comers who serve beneath it thereunto perfect. To quote Hebrews 10, verse number 1. In fact, in verse number 4 of that same chapter, do we not there read, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And yet, isn't sin the critical matter that separates humanity from God? Isn't that what drives us from Him? And isn't that what, in fact, causes us to be lost? And thus, that's the major point that any religious law needs to address. And yet, the old law could not make one completely and identically perfect, sinless before God. Those thoughts perhaps challenge us to appreciate Paul's famous statement in Acts 13. In verses 38 and 39 of that chapter, 
as he so boldly proclaimed the truth of the matter before the, those to whom he preached on the first missionary journey, he plainly said to them on that occasion, You can now be justified from all things from which you could not be justified under the law of Moses. Doesn't that speak volumes? Today, how blessed we are to appreciate justification before God. The character of standing right in His presence, just as if we had not sinned. And yet, they didn't have the fullness of that privilege beneath the Old Testament era. Though the law of Moses was great, it was only temporary. And certainly, that was its major fault. You might also notice yet another passage in Ephesians, the second chapter also addressing this same set of ideas, again from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, might I invite your attention on through verse number 16 with me. That's Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Might I invite you to notice again that which we just read. He has placed a contrast between now you who are in Christ and the state of affairs which existed before. And he again says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off, aliens, distanced from the very love and power of God's promises, now in Christ and His blood, you have been drawn nigh. You're close to God now. You have a relationship with Him that truly is magnificent, that truly is a splendid thing to behold. And notice, in fact, how He emphasizes that idea in verses 14 and 15. He, speaking of Christ, is our peace. And what has He done to make peace? He has made both one. What are these two parties or two classes that have been now under discussion? Both. These were those who, in fact, were such that the middle wall of partition has been broken down. The earlier statements of the chapter, coupled with these, point us to this fact. That that law to which he's referring is, again, the law of Moses. And he says very clearly, it has been abolished in the flesh, verse number 15. I have, in fact, given us a definition of abolish. The Greek word that's employed there literally means to bring to naught, it literally affirms the fact of to put to an end, to cause to cease, to annul. This to which the apostle referred, this middle wall of partition, these commandments that he especially referenced there in verse 15, the law of commandments, he says it has been brought to an end. That states it rather clearly, doesn't it? That to which that statement refers thus means we are not beneath that serving any longer. It's been abolished. It's been set aside. It was replaced, wasn't it? It doesn't mean there's no law now, of course, in place. It means it's simply not that one. It is not, in fact, the law of Moses. The sister epistle to this one, the Colossian letter, describes this same idea. 
not only in similar words, but in fact extending it. In the second chapter of Colossians, might I invite your attention here to verses 14 through 17. Colossians 2, verses 14 through 17. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ." Beginning in verse 11 of this chapter, Paul, in such lovely language, described life in Christ. And he made reference to some Old Testament matters like circumcision and to the nature of life in the body and even to the matter of baptism. But to come to the point of our interest this morning, he stated in verse 14 in the form of a very clear statement, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. What ordinances? What bond was this? What set of laws was under discussion? Again, the context is clear when we notice the reading of verses 15, 16, and 17. You and I just noticed that Paul reached a conclusion. He said in verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you. That which thus was able to be a part of the judging mechanism of the Old Testament had to do with new moons and Sabbaths. And it had to do with feast days and things you eat and drink and holy days. Those were things under the law of Moses. Read Leviticus chapters 11 and 12 of what they could and could not eat. Read, in fact, the description of Exodus 23 about the nature of the Sabbath and how holy it was. Read the nature of the new moon commandments in Numbers chapter 9. All of them were explicit statements under the law of Moses. Paul said, let no man therefore judge you by these things this day. Christ nailed that to His cross. It's no longer the binding law in effect. It has been replaced, my friend. And those today who labor under the consideration that for some reason it's still in effect are sorely misguided. They are placing their trust in an inferior set of laws. The Hebrew writer did say that was a, a set of commands that was at fault. We live today under a better covenant a better testimony, with better promises, based upon the perfect Christ, with the opportunity of justification. All of that, you see, the Old Testament couldn't offer, for the perfect sacrifice hadn't come yet. It is in light of these conclusions today that we can perhaps draw some summary statements and the lesson will be yours. Those summary statements might take the following form which reminds us again of the misguided nature of some in our world today who think the law of Moses in a form of the Ten Commandments is binding, but none of the other laws are. Where does God distinguish under the law of Moses between those Ten Commandments and the 614 others? Notice He commanded pilgrimages to Jerusalem three times a year. The people who keep the Ten Commandments do that too. He commanded them that they have to worship in a tabernacle there that was made exactly by the prescription of Exodus chapters 25 to 40. Do they do that too? He commanded verbatim in a number of ways that they were required to keep various and sundry commandments of uncleanness even in terms of various and sundry diseases and other things of the human body on a monthly basis. Do they keep that too? 
We might thus remind ourselves of James, the second chapter, verse 10. If a man offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Thus, they delude themselves, and anyone does, who thinks that somehow those Ten Commandments, by the fact that they occurred in Exodus 20, are themselves still binding today. The only way that they would be were if they were repeated in the New Testament by the Christ or His inspired writers. Some of them, of course, are. Just as surely as they weren't to commit murder, we aren't either, Romans chapter 13. Just as surely as they were not to covet, we aren't either, Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. But the mere fact that they existed then does not mean they're binding today, and in fact they are not. In summary, let's try to wrap up those ideas with these words. Is the law of Moses binding on any individual living on earth today? No, it is not. That law was nailed to the cross. That law, in fact, was blotted out. That law has been superseded by another. And in fact, we've seen some reasons for us to keep in mind. First, that old law, that law of Moses, was only given to a select group of people. Secondly, we learned the interesting lesson that once it had fulfilled its purpose, it was to be superseded. And when the Christ came, He put in place the perfect law of liberty, James 1 verse 25. He put in place the law of Christ, Galatians 6 verse 2. He put in place that law to which Paul referred in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 21 and 22. Paul, you see, knew we still serve beneath the law. It's just not the law of Moses. This new law, in fact, demands that to be right with God, we need to be Christians. We need to be those who subscribe to the faith set forth in the gospel. This morning, is that descriptive of you? Have you believed Jesus to be the Son of God? John 8, verse 24. Have you, in fact, repented of the sins of your life? Those matters that, in fact, drove our Savior to Calvary, to Golgotha? That idea of repentance is commanded of us, isn't it? In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, there that noble and peerless, peerless apostle simply said, The time was that God winked at ignorance, but now He commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That doesn't leave anyone out. Nextly, we need to confess the sweet name of Jesus. Romans 10, verse 10. For with a confession, we notice that that is what's made unto salvation. And then we need to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. This morning, if you haven't done that, this would be a wonderful time. God is calling. In fact, He desires very much that you become a child of His. If you have done that, but you really haven't been faithful, for one reason or another, you have allowed yourself to, in fact, live in a disgraceful state of separation from God. You haven't devoted yourself to His Word and to His cause and to His church. Come back to your first love today. Let us pray for you and with you as was done for Simon in Acts the 8th chapter. If we could be of assistance in either of those ways, don't submit to the law of Moses. Bend your will to the law of Christ. Humbly submit to it and live faithfully to it till death, and the crown of life will be yours, Revelation 2 verse 10. If we can help you though now in a public way in response, let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.